Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our guests for this show were Chelsea Globitz, who is the president of the Minneapolis Regional Labor Federation, AFL-CIO, and Javier Morillo, who until recently was the president of the Service Employees International Union, Local 26, but has joined the Center for Innovation and Worker Organization at Rutgers University. We talked about labor issues, both big and small, local concerns, what's going on with unions nationally, and in the bigger picture as well. I hope you enjoy the show. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Uh, very excited to talk with you both. Uh, we t- we're trying to do like all of like labor in like one show. I know it's like a lot, but I did. So I just wanted to sort of like almost. I feel like it's probably valuable to do like a labor one hundred and one. So it's like, uh, and maybe I thought the best way to do this because you both are in unions. Like, okay, I um, I'm a potential member of one of your unions, right? Like, and I know that AFL CIO is you know hundreds of unions, but pick pick your favorite. What is your favorite? UFCW. Okay, That's where I'm coming from. Is it? Oh, because where you come from, yes. it's not just the wrestling connection. Um, um, so, uh, so uh, I'm I'm a potential. I just signed up to work for you, and I'm not yet a part of the union. Like, make the pitch to me to join your union because I have to sign up, right? You do have to sign up. Yeah. So, so what do you do? What you come to my you come to me and you say, oh, you should sign up to be a member of the union, and I say, oh, okay, I'm I'm a pushover, so I'll probably just say yes. But uh, I'm happy someone's talking to me. So uh, let's talk more. Tell me why. Tane, tell me a little bit about yourself and oh. what you like about working <laughs> here. Oh well, uh, I, I just I just uh, where do we work again? We work at a grocery store. A grocery store. Oh, okay. So I like the grocery store. I like working here. I like uh, the people. I do like that. I like stocking things. It's uh, it's sort of meditative that way. I like the I like the produce. And what kind of challenges do you see happening in your community and here at the at the store? I feel like people. I I am skeptical that the bulk section is going to work out. I I just I'm I'm not sure. It seems like it's, this system can't like function long term if like people are bringing their own jars in and then we just trust them to say like that this jar only weighs like half of a pound and then we're like all right well fill it up with olive oil then here it's a dollar fifty I guess it's a, it seems like it's a bad business proposition. Well, did you know that there's a way where you and your coworkers can get together and bring those concerns to the boss? What? There is. So we can work together to address whatever is happening on the floor. So if you have somebody who's causing you a a customer that's having you cause a problem, you know, even though this is a customer service job, it is a high-stress environment. You you know, a lot of people think about these as just retail, low-level jobs, but we are professionals here, and when we join together, we can make these jobs even better for you and our coworkers. Okay. So I like this is this is how I can like have a, an impact on my boss without actually maybe having to like talk to the boss myself. It's the voice on the job. Yeah. It's the difference between you going up alone and addressing any concern whether it's your your very particular concern about bulk um, or maybe wages <laughs> or benefits or what have you and you are stronger when you are speaking together than you are alone when it's 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 you know how do you how hard do you find it to ask someone for a raise 
Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah. Uh, no. Asking for a raise? It I've is, been in this improv game for too long. <laughs> it is a thing. And, uh, and it's easier. It's made easier when you're standing with your coworkers and you're all saying together, hey, we deserve better. And uh, the, the supermarket's doing pretty well and we think we deserve a raise. And, uh, and the boss might say no. And then uh, you might withhold your labor. That sounds that sounds like a very Minnesota way of saying strike. Uh, like, <laughs> I'm talking to you, Tane. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I love that. So, uh, okay, so that's a that's a good like. So it's uh, it's us coming together and doing the thing. And so uh, people want to be a part of something. It's not just a union providing a service for you. They want to be a part of something bigger, and they want to be a part of this community. Uh, so th- that's like a great, uh, I think, starting place uh, to think about like, oh, this is how unions like came together was this week. It's, it's more complicated than that, right? Because like the or isn't it in terms of like how unions are structured, who can be a union and who can't be a union? So um, I don't know. Maybe we should start with um, SEIU. Uh, this is a, you're a private sector union, right? So you're so local 26. We represent. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, we're entirely the private sector. We represent 8, 000, about 8,000 members, janitors, security officers. Airport service workers, um, window cleaners. They're the folks who uh, clean and keep safe all the downtown commercial office buildings. And and, uh, now retail janitors who clean inside um, stores uh, like supermarkets and uh, and targets and such. And so you, like when folks are, uh, you know, start to work in one of these places, you are like actually like literally signing these folks up and uh, getting them that way. Yep. Uh, AFL-CIO, you have again like a whole batch of different unions. You already alluded to, you started in the um, grocery stores uh, union and that was one place. But there's also, there's public sector unions and I, I feel like this is a thing to like try and pick apart like how these are different, right? Well, so like Teachers unions are something that are slightly different than this, or maybe not. Right. So you have the private sector unions who they work for uh, privately, a company or a corporation or an employer that's like privately held. Public sector unions work for a government entity. So your public schools, your state of Minnesota, the city of Minneapolis. They're also your bus drivers. They're your firefighters. They're, um, you know, like your first line service providers to our entire community. So public sector unions are some of the most important, and it's something that we had to fight hard to get the rights to have public sector unions. See, this is a piece I didn't, I was doing research for this show. I didn't, I mean, you think about labor movement largely coming out of progressive era and then New Deal stuff. But public sector unions weren't really a thing until 1960s, right? Until JFK sort of yeah. was forced into this to some degree. Well, pu- public sector. So, so in terms of the history of the labor movement in the 20th uh, century in the United States, the, the exponential growth that happened was 30s, 40s, and then post-war era, right? That um, you saw uh, rapid growth, um, and then um, there's a decline that started. And one of the key things that declined was the 1947 uh, Taft. Hartley Act. Which, Ooh, which, oh, I'm sorry. Everybody drink Taft Hartley. Yes. Um, <laughs> That's a very weird drinking game. Um, <laughs> You've been playing for six years. It's the first time it came up. Yeah. So what the Taft Hartley Act did was put restrictions on unions' behavior. So, for example, 
with, um, it, it makes it made it illegal for unions to engage in secondary boycotts or um, or uh, in sympathy strikes. And so you know how you you hear like France, they'll say well, there's a general strike and everyone stays home. That is illegal in the United States. You cannot have general strikes like that. So with, so by law, our members we we can like during the life of our contract we cannot strike. We can strike when our contract is expired, but we cannot like in like because. The janitors and security officers, they all work in subcontracted industries. And so um, that means that the de- like downtown, like the IDS building, the IDS building itself does not hire janitors. They hire a company that then hires janitors. Right. You following? I am. Okay. So the whole thing about like secondary boycotts and not, not, and not allowing that, it actually encouraged employers to outsource work. Mm. Right. So it used to be, then, and our union used to represent janitors who were hired directly by the IDS building. Okay. And at that time, standards were higher, and people had like 10 sick days in our old contracts and such. And as the work started getting, um, getting outsourced and, and uh, subcontracted, it was, become, it was growing uh, lower and lower in union density. We have grown by figuring out how to organize in the subcontracted industry, okay. but it was basically how to organize around the Taft-Hartley Act. The basic rule of thumb in the United States is that the way labor law has worked is that if there is a tactic that is effective at raising standards for workers, it is made illegal. So actually, this is a piece I wanted to try, uh, try and understand better. Made illegal. Uh, what are the protections that, if it were legal, like what are the protections so that are different than now? Because you hear about people doing illegal strikes. Right. And so what's the difference between an illegal strike and a legal strike? So, so uh, in our case, because we're under contracts, so during the life of our contract, like we are, we commit to not strike during that time, right? So, any like if our members just decided to not work today, and we're still during the life of the contract, that would be considered a wildcat strike. Um, wildcat. Yeah. There are also, yeah, it's a good I name. I know, right? it's fun, yeah. yeah. Uh, it sounds like a, it's like a cartoon, like a superhero yeah. character. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, but Wildcat Strike, yeah. it's, it's, that, that's one example of it. People often talk also about illegal strikes when it comes to public sector unions because the ability to form a public sector union, it's all, it's all by law, right? right? So different states have different laws. In some, in some states, it's not. It's, they, it's not legal to form a public sector union. And so in, uh, in Minnesota, we have public sector unions, but, um, but, but many do not have the right to strike. So if you... And, oh, sorry, go ahead. Just the one thing I'll add, 2019 started out on a great foot. We opened up the year, and the federal government shutdown was happening, and all of these workers were out. And Wait, it was a great threat. Note? What? I was being sarcastic. Oh, okay. Oh, good. I was, um, <laughs> like, it was it a was, great start. But, but it was a threat. It. Yeah. it was a threat of a general strike, an illegal yeah. strike by the uh, pilots and flight attendants and other air professionals who were standing with the federal workers right. who were on the ground protecting them. It was their threat of a strike that ended that shutdown. So just, I, again, to try and put, if, uh, if you do a wildcat or an illegal strike, what are the penalties for that that are different than if you do a strike that's protected somehow? Well, so here's the thing. Like, so it, the, 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 there was this wave of teacher strikes in right. red states. Yeah. Those were all illegal. The, and the end result was they got really big raises. 
we should do more illegal strikes? Illegal strikes. Yeah. yeah. My opinion, yes. Yeah. Because the again, I like I'm not sure if I landed that point earlier. If it is a if it is an effective tactic to improve the standards of workers, it is made illegal by like business and 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 government. This is just what what has happened. And so, like what has happened historically is you push you pushed the line, right? Whether it's civil civil disobedience of all of all kinds is is what have pushed movements forward. And teachers across the country in the last couple of years have engaged in civil disobedience. And you don't get your job back. But that's the threat. That's the threat. If you strike and you do normally have labor protections, uh, then you do get your job back. Correct. It, Correct. Uh, at the end of the strike, and with the wildcat striker, with the illegal strike or whatnot, you, you may not. They may say, "Nope, you don't. We're yeah. going to just do somebody else." Now. But even so, this is getting super technical. Please. But but just it just put it under the rubric of if it's effective, it's made illegal, which is to say, like. When we strike, it must be an unfair labor practice strike. What that means is that the National Labor Relations Board, which is established by the Taft-Hartley Act, um, has to say that... Drink. Yes, drink, everyone. I love this game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, you teach at the Humphrey School. I'm, this would be such a killer at the Humphrey School. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, that... Uh, where was I? Now I lost it. Is it drinking if, it's, uh, if it's illegal, it's effective. Or yeah. if it's effective, it becomes illegal. But the... the uh, it was... Yes, the National Labor Relations Board has to like say that that the employer committed an unfair labor practice. So when we go on strike, even like when it is completely legal to do so after the like, our contract has expired, if we are explicitly striking for economic reasons, meaning I am striking because I don't get enough money, then the employer can legally replace that worker. Hmm. Yeah. So so that's why when you see us picket, the the picket signs will say this is an unfair labor practice strike. And it is aimed at this employer, and it's and it, it all of these like sort of it's sort of like those uh, drug commercials with all the dis- <laughs> all the disclaimers. Um, we have to do that because like the free speech rights that that the average citizen is understood to enjoy in this country are not enjoyed by unions. Huh. And the ten- and like it gets even more nuanced. We're about to go into some strike activity with uh, the nurses here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And if any other union member wants to show up on their strike line, they have to give the hospital a 10-day written notice or they can be escorted off the premises if they're wearing any other union. So, like, if you're a construction worker and you show up, you can be escorted off if you didn't give a 10-day notice to the hospital. And so what, what I don't, is this the, is this like the, uh, like, rough and, rough and tumble politics? And when you say, like, yeah, well, we're going to show up anyway and, like. Yeah. Okay, that's exciting <laughs> and terrifying. I don't, I don't like confrontation. Um, so, I spent 37 hours in the Houston City Jail um, when we were organizing January. Man, Houston's there. bad enough. That was really bad. No, it was, and it was. I do not recommend civil disobedience because they do not play down there. We got trampled by horses. Um, but, but like you have to there, which is you know a very red state. To, to form the union of janitors there in 2006, we had to create a crisis for the city. And that's what we did. And I, with a group of other Minnesotans, went down and engaged in civil disobedience. And it's a choice that you make to push the envelope because at the end of that, like by the time I got out of jail, um, after 37 hours, like the, the employers had to, who had 
who had broken away from the table and were not were refusing to bargain. By the time we got out of jail, they'd come back to the table. And by the time I was back in Minnesota, the janitors of Houston, who were making five fifteen an hour in two thousand six, um, got their first union contract with guaranteed health care. That was the first time ever, and they are still union right now. And that's in a red state. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of good organizing in red states because they, you have places like Texas. Teachers cannot bargain a contract in Texas. They still have unions. They still get together and try to advocate to raise standards for their students, even though it is illegal to collectively bargain. So have they have they tried yet? Not in Texas. We haven't had one of these strikes yet, where we've se- we've seen in like West Virginia, and Arizona, Arizona, some of these other states where they. So, uh, so help me. Uh, let's let's dive into. You know, I should say in the second half of the show, we open up for you all to ask questions. But there's a couple of big things we we really should get to. We said before we were going to talk about uh, this big thing. Everybody sort of was talking about the Janice decision. My mother's name is Jana. I think it has nothing to do with her. I hope I not. Hope not. <laughs> yeah, um, that yeah. sucked. Yeah. yeah. So what? Let's because this was a, a particular thing about. Um, uh, who is sort of part of a union and who pays the dues? So I don't know, do one of you ha- want to sort of help talk us through this quick? So the Supreme Court um, took, just so you, a lot of the coordinated attacks on unions right now are running through the court systems, to Javier's point of if it's successful, make it illegal. So the latest uh, project is to create um, right to work across the entire public sector, and right to work means that you cannot have a union uh, clause that, uh, that allows you to collect fair share fees from people who are not members. So basically it's people who, and, and we're by law required to represent those members. So even if someone isn't a part of the union, we still have to represent them as a union member. So it creates a sort of driving down to the bottom where people leave the union, but you're still required to represent them. So that's the basic premise about how to weaken the union. But here in Minnesota, when Janice was coming up, we doubled down and made organizing in these workplaces a top, top priority. And today, a year out after Janice, our public sector unions have grown. Our largest public sector unions have grown in the face of these attacks and in the face of Janice. So, uh, so this is the free rider problem they talk yep. about, right? Yep. Like, is that, okay, I can get the benefits of being a union, uh, in the union, and I don't end up actually paying anything. You say it's illegal uh, to not represent those folks. But we're, we're talking about doing all kinds of illegal things. Why not just not represent them? Um, be, well, you could not do that, but then you get charges before the National Labor Relations Board, and you get um, you, you get uh, sanctions against you. You could be eventually d- be disbanded as a union. Um, I mean, the, the the power of the government that what people don't realize in terms of uh, of labor unions is so all, all of every every dime we spend in our office spend in our offices must be submitted to the federal government through LM2 forms um, they're called they are the bane of everyone's existence and like you like uh, the the Taft Hartley Act also required all labor le- <laughs> all, all labor leaders to declare that they are not members of the communist party um, uh, yeah uh, because there you know it was red scare fear of uh, uh, of communism and so there's there are all kinds of restrictions that are placed on unions in the, in this country which is so there are since you know from the 1970s to today um, two things happen in this country. One, 
the income and wealth inequality that we've seen and is now at historic highs has gotten they got uh, increasingly bad and worse until we are where we are now and union membership has declined yeah. and those two things are correlated and those two and that's purposeful so that that is what has happened um, that has been the plan of the of the right on this and it has up to now been effective I mean I, I, and you noted already uh, uh, Janice sucked I think was your word something yes, not like your that. mom but yeah yes, no but that's fine no. Um, uh, no she doesn't she's lovely it was just her birthday and Mother's Day uh, so there has been some people who say okay uh, we live in this era now and so now unions really got to like figure out new ways to like make the case why like to do it because you know you yeah. you don't have any other choice, right? So I am wondering how this has changed. Like you know, you, you're talking about it's been successful here in Minnesota. You've doubled down on uh, driving up membership and getting people out, even without this, in order to sort of counteract this. So what have you learned that sort of maybe people who are wringing their hands in other states, like oh, I, we're doomed. We got to figure this out. So right now, unions are more popular in the public opinion than they ever been in any point in history. Really, people want to be a part of unions. The problem is, is you can't just go to my webpage and sign up to become a union member. Um, so we need to rethink the scope of what does it mean to be a part of a union, which is really difficult to do given this landscape that Javier has painted with all of the rules and regulations. So we're trying to get creative and create structures that exist outside of your typical government entities that can create new ways to bargain for power for workers. You know, the the future is to be seen and how that works out, but every single day we're like scraping away trying to find a new new ideas and new structures that are going to give people a voice at the table. A bona fide collective bargaining agreement is the best way to do that, but we don't have enough access into collective bargaining agreements in this current landscape. Yeah. So are we setting up worker committees? Are we setting up worker councils? Are industries being regulated by a worker-led panel? These kind of structures to at least hold us up and allow us to grow while we try to work on this embattled legal yep. landscape. And, yep. And I'd say, you know, I, actually, I feel like I've broken a rule. When I first started working in the labor movement, I would listen to labor leaders talk and I feel like we're always very eloquent about all the things that are being done to us, but less eloquent about our vision for the future. Mm -hmm. And I and I would listen to labor leaders and think, who wants to join your movement? You're totally depressing. Um, <laughs> but so let me change uh, tone a little bit right now. So the janitors, the, uh, the justice for janitors movement, when the industry was subcontracted, there were many in the labor movement, many within SEIU that said, Immigrant janitors, many of them undocumented, they'll never take a risk to join a union. They'll never go on strike because they're scared that they might be deported. Well, we learned that immigrants, you know, someone who, who chooses to leave their country, go somewhere where they're often not wanted and speak, a, you know, where they speak a different language, they're also risk takers. And we built an entire movement of, uh, of janitors putting it all on the line. And the janitors then built a security officers union. Um, uh, and so, so low-wage workers and workers generally, they want to belong to something they want a brighter future and it's on it's on us to do do the different things right the, all these red states it is not it, there's they don't have collective bargaining people would have said probably said to them you know you can't do this you don't you don't have a right to, to have a union they went on strike in west freaking virginia and and they want i mean they like 
they, they, I think that's the state where they came back with a rage increase, and they're like, yeah, not good enough. And then they came back with a bigger one. This, this happened in Arizona as well, in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is bright hope for people like really standing up. When, and and when, when workers come together, they can raise their standards, and they're doing it across the country. And, and that's something that everyone should find inspiring. So I, one last question on this, which is actually uh, there is a, somebody who is a longtime union member and normally comes to some of our shows, and he couldn't be here tonight, so he wanted to ask. And it's, I think, very related to this. He's like, uh, he is uh, 70-something, and he was wondering, what is it millennials like, want out of their union, and is it different? Is it is it different how they are engaging or relating uh, than maybe his generation did? We all want the same basic values. We want dignity in the workplace. We want a bright future. What it makes, what it takes to create a bright future, maybe a little bit different. But at the end of the day, the bottom, the bottom, the bottom rung is that we all want a voice. We all want the ability to think about an economic future, live with dignity, live with respect. Maybe that means pensions look different for the next generation than it does for the old generation. But Pension. we want to... I've heard this. Taft-Hart- Taft-Hart- <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's going to look different. It's going to feel different. You know, technology is changing our world. And technology is not a, should not be seen as an attack on the workforce. It should be seen as neutral. It can either be used for good or bad. Um, and, you know, we want to fight for technology being something about improving people's lives, making the workplaces safer, you know making it so that we're also as workers benefiting from technology. So as technology happens in the workplace, we need to be a part of that benefit as well, not just the right. bosses. And I, I'd say that like there's a, it's not that people necessarily want different things. There's different ways of talking and and relating to people. I'll say when I when I became president of Local 26 in 2005, um, most of our members did not, like it was hard to get in touch with people. We have a very mobile like a, we have a lot of people move a lot and and a lot of t- and turnover in low wage industries. Today, almost all our members have cell phones, and so technology is like like we have. You know, we communicate through apps and through all kinds of, you know, and we have a workforce that is dispersed through the seven county metro area. You imagine security officers, you know, they work late at night, sometimes one per building. And um, and so technology is also like facilitating organizing in ways that uh, was not possible before. Uh, okay, so so last question, then uh, we're going to turn it over to the cast. But uh, this is also sort of related. This same person was like, uh, you have these two young labor... Yeah, they didn't say this part. Young, attractive, handsome, uh, <laughs> charming labor leaders uh, on the show. She's uh, young. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. But they were curious about if there are particular pieces about... Uh, you- but you are young, I think, right? In the labor movement for a leader, we're- probably. You both are. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yes. how did a- we are both considered young in the labor movement? Yes, but that's a problem of the labor movement and for me. Well, I'm, that's, that's I'm turning the- fifty in July, um, so. and you're you, and you don't look it, uh, and you. But that's young uh, in the labor movement, and so this person was wondering: a, how did that happen? Uh, that you both ended up in sort of like leadership positions, uh, which is unusual yeah. of your age, and then. Is there a lesson in that, or is there something to glean, or something that other movement, uh, labor movements around the country should be looking to what you two were able to do? Well, I definitely think mentorship. Javier was an early mentor of mine, um, and there was this moment when my boss was moving on, and someone told me, "Oh, you, you should run for that." And I'm like, "No way! Why would someone? Why would I ever do that?" You know, like. But then you started 
I brought it up to a few other people, and I think you being one of them, and 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 everyone's like, yeah, no, that's a, that's the that's the right idea. So young people don't see themselves in these roles. Can I just point? Uh, and you have to like, like you have to have a network of people that are going to help push you into that because I would never have imagined that I was going to run for this position. And now I have a young family. I'm much more reflective of who the actual workers are in the workforce today. Um, and I think sometimes we're very interested in leading in a different way and digging into this question of the future. Cause like, I want there to be a labor movement in 20 years when I'm still here, you know? So like, I've got a lot at stake in making sure that we grow and that we adapt. You, you said everybody was like into this. I, I, I've like, I've tried to be on like nonprofit boards before and people are like, Oh son. Like, um, I, I'm just, I'm skeptical, I guess that like there, there was no pushback. Like it was very important when Chelsea was, uh, put her name forward and was supported because precisely because I mean, the, the Federation had not been ever headed by a woman, which is astounding, and someone who actually reflects the the, the, the workforce today. It was incredibly important, and and right, and it was she was she took an opportunity. She was given an opportunity, and she took it. I, when I I came to Minnesota in 2000 to teach at Carleton College, and I had a radical change of careers, um, and uh, and and I I thought it was a first job. when I started working for SAU, I thought it was going to be a first job in politics, not a job to put me on a path to becoming a president of a labor union. Um, and when I was asked, I thought, you are high. Like, I know nothing about leading a union. Um, but I think there's something that comes with fresh ideas and a different perspective. Part of the reason I'm stepping down from my position uh, next uh, month is that I've done it for 14 years. And I think one of the things the labor movement needs to do is refresh itself and bring in new ideas and the kind of... Uh, when I didn't know what I was doing, there's also a kind of creativity that comes with not knowing what the hell you're doing. Oh, tell me about it. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And now I, I've, I've known how to do this job for a while, and now it's time for other people to take over. And so it's making room for others. When I, I started doing my meetings with folks right away, telling them that I was going to run, and um, someone who I looked up to a lot, the first thing, I, it was right after I'd had my first child, um, the first thing that came out of their mouth was, what about the baby? <laughs> I was like, oh, I was expecting this person to be really supportive. And then that's the question that the very first thing that came out of their mouths. And I was like, I think the baby's going to be okay. I hope that they sign up for the union. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's been great. I mean, my kids come along to stuff like tomorrow night, we're going to go to a strike vote, a legal strike vote. And I'm sure they're going to come with me to the union hall because that's just odd hours. That's what we have to do. So. Wow, a baby in a strike hall. I can't imagine that as improv. So uh, uh, so on that note, can we do a big round of applause for these two amazing Okay. Hey. Hey, everybody. All right. Fantastic. Okay. So if you have a question, wow, so fast. All right, uh, I was just going to say, if you have a question, raise your hand, as was brilliantly demonstrated by that middle center audience member. I will come towards you with the microphone in a non-threatening manner, and I will give you the microphone and a sticker. Uh, I have to come to that person in the middle. 
Uh, hello, hello. I gotta put this down here. Well, I'm just gonna put that there and hand this to you. <laughs> okay, so um, my question is about something that bothers me all the time. And I feel like we've been brainwashed. And actually, Chelsea, you even said this term. And I just went, wah! Um, we hear over and over the term right-to-work states. And there is nothing about those laws that is about a person's exactly. right to work. It's about their lack of representation. And so I guess the question is, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And what can we do about this? Is there a t an alternative term we can all start using together? and put in our letters to the New York Times or whatever? Well, the one thing I'll just, I don't have an answer for what we should be calling it besides it's just, you know, driving labor into the ground and driving work and driving down, it's the income inequality generator is what it is. Um, what happened though and what's, that we looked into is we did not want to call it right to work. But the more we tried to as we worked to beat back right to work, we were spending more time trying to rebrand and rename what right to work was than actually talk about our issues. So that's kind of why the term right to work sticks around because we were spending so much of our time and energy and resources trying to call it something else rather than actually fighting at the root cause of it, and that was getting people to join the union, which is why that particular term hangs on, um, which it's not a great reason, but it, it is all about income inequality. Yeah, and I would say, so right to work, it should, um, so some people call it right to work for, for less, less. That's a, which is essentially what it is. Um, you know, it originated, one of its big proponents was a man from Texas, um, and, and it originated in the South, and it was explicitly white supremacist um, campaign um, based, and, and it was on agitating white workers to say that the union will force you to work side by side with black workers. Um, that when you think of, like, as we, we described before, what right to work does, right, that it's the freeloader sort of problem, as, we, as it's, it's called, that is what it, it's not, it is both about starving the union. But I'd say even more of, of resources. But more importantly, it causes tension amongst a workforce, right? Because if you are working alongside people and some of you are choosing to pay dues and others are not, some of you like are at the bargaining table and you bargain a raise and then you go back to work and the people who were not at the table and are choosing not to pay dues, they also get that raise, it causes a lot of resentment, right? And that, and that, is, the, that is the goal and the project of Right to Work. It is to cause the disunity that, that causes the dissolution of the, of the union. Um, but the, the more important thing that I think we need to do always is, is to, as, as Chelsea said, is, is speak to our, uh, our values and why we unite to, to raise, raise standards. And, um, you know, in, in uh, Missouri, just in the, uh, the last election cycle, they beat back a Right to Work law that was by, like, and it was voted um, the, by, uh, it was by a referendum um, uh, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, like overwhelmingly across party line and sort of because, because people spoke to the needs of workers to stand up to corporations and corporate power in a time when they are seeing their livelihoods um, become less and, you know, their, 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 their way of living just slipping away from them and seeing the rich get richer. And so when we speak to wealth inequality in this country and the drastic um, uh, state in which workers are, people come our way because they know that, that uniting, they can fight that. 
Okay. Were there other questions up here common before I question. descend into the, into the mm, not cheap seats? They're all the same price. All right. Uh, uh, did, were you raising a hand? Or no? but, oh, okay. Are you related to one of the guests? No. Okay, good. All right, good. Go nuts. You're just sitting next to them. I, I Well, yes. Uh, I am interested in how we think about unions in the gig economy. This is, yeah, you keep the sticker. This is a great question. The gig economy. So there was actually a thing just last week. A bunch of Uber drivers all struck in, um, in New York and actually in a whole batch of cities. So how do we think about unions in an increasingly gig-based economy? Yeah. So I think this is one of the big challenges that we have today. And I'll say that, that the, the flip side of what I said earlier, like of, you know, that, 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 that labor leaders tend to be very eloquent about what's being done against us. I think that there's a flip side of it is that we, we also, in our internal conversations, need to look internally about what we need to do differently. And so what we are doing in Minnesota to, um, to, is to organize differently in the subcontracted industry in the way like that, that work, the direction that work is going because the subcontracted janitors that started in the 1970s, they were canaries in the coal mine. And so employers have figured out all kinds of ways of, of, uh, of hiring folks in ways where they don't have to pay wages and benefits. Right now, Amazon. Amazon has a, a wish fulfillment center in Shakopee. And so what does that mean is that their business model depends on the folks here in this room and folks who live in the cities. But then when we pass minimum wage, when we pass uh, um, sick, day, sick leave and all these things in the cities, it doesn't apply to them because their workers are working out there. By the way, where do they get their workers? They bust them from Cedar Riverside. Um, so pe- people, are, people from the cities, from Minneapolis, are being bussed out to Shakopee to work. They work with timers on their body. Um, and you have to, like, uh, in the time you get an order, you have to go find this piece and put it back, and you're, you, you have a timer going off, and if that timer, um, if you do not get, uh, get that in by the time that, um, that, that it goes off, you get, you get a, a demerit, you get sort of point against you. This is the overall model in which they work. Um, that is what the gig economy means for Amazon workers. It also means that deliveries, right, that we, you know, the Amazon Prime, uh, you get, uh, you know, the, the, often the people who come to your door are, you know, it's not UPS anymore, right? It's, and the way they do that, it's, it works like Uber does. Like, so I can be an Amazon driver, I have an app, and I get it, and I say I'm available now to pick up stuff, and so I go get, get something and take it to your, um, uh, to someone's door. That person is not classified by Amazon as an employee of Amazon. They are classified as, as an independent contractor. What does that mean? That Amazon is not paying the, like for wages and benefits for them, that they, and they are workers filing comp. workers' comp, any of that. That's the responsibility of the worker. So it is incumbent upon us as a movement to figure out ways for workers to come together um, and to improve standards because the, like, what the gig economy is meaning for lots and lots of workers, what the shared economy is meaning, is like you might get more cash in your pocket at the moment, but you have no retirement security and no health care, uh, n- none of the kind of benefits that people used to get from their employment. So is part of this challenge, just to try and pull this out a bit, uh, that's a problem. And so part of the answer, though, has to be, it seems like that we've talked about some of the policy pieces, that workers also have to be like, well, we're not going to play this game then, right? Does that have to be part of it? Yes, yes it does. And um, this problem of independent contractors, at the core, it's 
a disruption of the employer and employee relationship. So people who are part of the gig economy, they're not working in a traditional workplace with a coworker side by side. They don't have a traditional relationship with an employer. So how are we creating minimum standards that workers in the gig economy who are operating by the app of their phone are able to come together and demand a floor? That You see some of that happening in bigger cities. You saw the strike, which is the first... Um, step of that. Out in New York, they have a, a guild um, where people can be a part of the guild, and there they've su- successfully gotten a minimum wage for Uber drivers. So there are models where you can bring workers together, and this is what I was talking about. Like We need different structures outside of the re- traditional workplace and outside of the traditional political sphere. And they're going to continue to undermine the employer-employee relationship, particularly with this independent contractor work, that's like that's the challenge that's immediately in front of us. And, and I think there are new policy challenges, right? So, so um, like my my father-in-law, he uh, his first job out of college was his last job out of college. Worked for General Electric. He worked his entire, and he wow. retired with a pension. Um, and that that is he he's he's sort of you know the, he's the classic post-war worker in America. And that is gone. You know, the, av- the average millennial, he has seven jobs by the time they're, they're uh, 36, something like, like that, is that I've seen. Um, people change and uh, change work a lot. And I think we also, we have to have policies say that it creates portable benefits yeah. so that you are at a city level perhaps or a statewide level. Employers are, are, there are deductions happening so that you, whatever job you go to, that like you have a, like an account that 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 pays for your vacations that pays for your for your uh, your maternity leave whatever what what have you because all of those are things that in that in the gig economy and shared like people do not have access to and healthcare as a right for everybody <laughs> that is like the gig economy needs universal healthcare well, in order to 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 create an environment where they can bargain can i can i throw my radical like i my idea i've been playing with this week uh, and trying to study up for this show, if unions, um, if we kind of had kept unions as strong as they were or even stronger over the last 30 years and we kept more of that employer-employee relationship, we would have less of a push towards you know, what some people deem as like socialism or you know, more sort of government taking care of some of these things because people would be better taken care of by their relationship between the you know, union but even, and their employers. Even when the union movement has been at its strongest and its best, it was still leaving the most vulnerable people behind. People of color, women, they didn't have access to unions. It was, even when the union's been at the best, it's still, like, it's an institution that just needs to be constantly worked on and improved and better. So I don't want to aspire to, like, when the union was its best. I want to aspire to, like, where the union movement needs to go, where work is going, a more equitable workplace. Because, yeah, I mean, I already said it, but, like, I don't want to aspire to, like, what we were because that wasn't good enough. So we can do better. Okay, there was a hand over on this side. Hi, baby. Uh, Here you go. Hi, I want to talk about wage theft. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have a week left of session. Do you think that has a chance of getting through? And um, with giving 
more investigatory power to the Department of Labor and Industry? How will that affect unions? Can we just define some of those terms yes. just for everybody? Yeah. Wage theft. So there's, there is legislation right now moving in the Minnesota legislature. So wage theft is an interesting thing. Like I, the number of policymakers who I have personally spoken to, progressives, who say wage theft, like, does that really happen? Um, and the reason a lot of people can't conceive of it is that if you're in a middle-class job, you just can't conceive of, well, I go to work, I'm going to get a paycheck, right? Well, in low-wage industries, in industries like um, that janitorial non-union, sometimes people get paid in cash. Sometimes that's the result of because they hire undocumented workers. And many, many, the, the ways in which workers are exploited is that you just, you know, you finish a job and then you're told, Go home. Right? So it is a very real problem. Millions and millions of dollars are stolen annually, especially in urban areas. And it's more so everyone, if you add up the value of everything that gets physically stolen from someone's home or car from a break-in, it, that not, the not, amount of money that's being stolen in wages dwarfs that number. Wage theft is a much bigger problem than everyday theft when, think, when people think about theft. Yeah. So it is a very real problem. It's the failure to pay wages that are earned. So, like, if at the end of this show I just didn't pay any of it, yeah. So you, and a lot of times it shows up as, like, um, not being given the time off, being asked to work off the clock. Um, so it's it, more than just a paycheck. It's, yeah. it's everything. Yeah, and, it, and it's a very nefarious, it's particularly in exploited industries. Right. You know, the explosion of the affordable housing, and we're working on all these multi-unit affordable housing units, the amount of wage theft that's happening simultaneously is exploding within the construction industry of these multi-unit housing developments because it's an exploited, um, mostly undocumented workforce. And wage theft is already illegal. So like none, this whole wage theft debate is about enforcing things that are already illegal. So I don't have much hope for what's going to come out of the state legislature this year, but I am excited about a proposal that's coming forward in Minneapolis. And the key thing that needs to happen is like workers need to know their rights. So a key piece of being able to enforce wage theft is that you need to have in writing the wages that are owed to you. And that's a big shift. So it needs to be on the paycheck. Um, and that then makes it, because right now someone can come forward with a wage theft claim, which is already illegal, but there's no proof or way to follow up with it. So um, I, I'm hopeful for in the future for the legislature, but in the meantime, you know, we're leading in the cities. The city of Minneapolis is going to be, um, and, and it's about resources. You need investigators and you need a community partner. People who are victims of wage theft don't want to go to a city entity or a state entity or the Department of Labor to claim that they've had wages stolen. They want to go to a trusted community partner. So it's as much about partnering with community entities as it is the Department of Labor. And to give you a sense of how, how it might happen, so there's an organization here in Minneapolis called CETUL, C-T-U-L, that's for Centro de Trabajadores Unidos en Lucha, the Center for Workers United in Struggle in Spanish, and they've won like multi-million dollar lawsuits um, over the years. One case was of um, a cleaning contractor that cleaned retail stores. What they would do is that I, go, I would go in and work my eight hours and then clock out and then clock in as another person, a ghost employee under another name that way they would avoid um, full like overtime and so both in overtime and then just not getting paid even hours that they work it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in one in a single case and that is sadly just not uncommon
So uh, we're just about out of time. So we, uh, I, I think you've both done a great job giving us the history, and we've already talked to some degree about the, like the path forward. I always like to try and give folks like a sense, like, oh, they're motivated now. Like, ah, oh, they get this. This is like they they care. Uh, so. Uh, they should run to be the new president of SEIU. <laughs> yes. uh, and then uh, secondary to that, uh, what what is it people should do? So I would say, so uh, one thing is if, if you are in your workplace, would like to form a union, um, that's one, uh, one way to, to, to build power. And, and just watch for, you know, the Minneapolis Regional Labor Federation collects information of, like, you know, all unions, things that are going on. The janitors, security officers, it, it, all the members of SA Local 26, toward the end of this year, our contracts all open. So you will see um, uh, increased action in streets um, toward the end of this year. Uh, the, this when we, we represent janitors who work at night and often their visi- their labor is invisible. And so um, what we do during our campaigns is to make that work visible because, because we work in a subcontracted industry. When we're sitting across the table from our subcontractors, they are not powerful people. The powerful people are the IDS owners. It's, the, it's those folks. And because law forbids us from boycotting those people. Like, we have to create a big public campaign because those people who are not at the table are the ones who settle our contracts because they're the ones who sign the checks. And so when you see workers in motion, be supportive of those campaigns because that is what is happening. It's people whose labor is invisible is being made visible and see them. So an easy thing, go to Facebook and follow the Minneapolis Regional Labor Federation. That is an easy You'll one, get yeah. lots of activities every week. Um, it's just crazy the amount of activity happening out there and out in your community. And I would say the other big thing is to think about how can you challenge inequality and the lack of access to a good-paying job in your everyday setting? Because... Too often, it's like we're all fighting over this um, small little piece of the pie, particularly even within our own labor movement. So, like, what, what are you, how are you engaging in this conversation with your neighbors? People who you wouldn't normally talk to about politics, but, you know, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about work. Um, think about engaging the non you know, the people who don't necessarily think exactly like you do outside of your own network. I, and I thought of something very practical as to the Amazon example, because I'm sure some of you are thinking like, and you know, oh, I order Amazon, it's very convenient. Um, uh, Awood Center is a very worker good. center here in Minneapolis. It's spelled A-W-O-O-D. Yep. It is a worker center that is rooted in the East African community and said that Cedar Riverside is where, the, where they bus workers down to Shakopee for. You can support the Awood Center. They have, they have brought Amazon. It is the only active worker committee in the entire country, you know, in, the, in the entire United States. Um, and they have brought um, Amazon uh, to the bargaining table to improve standards for workers here in, in Minnesota. You might, like a couple months in December, there was some news that Jeff Bezos gave $2 million randomly to a, a, a homeless shelter a, a advocacy group here in, in Minneapolis. Did any of you hear that news by chance? So that was coincidentally the same week that Awood had a protest outside of uh, Shakopee. You know, Jeff Bezos can afford to throw $2 million uh, like that. And $2 million buys half of affordable housing unit. Right. And it was, and that was, and if you followed any news on that, that that organization was like, oh, that happened. And every other homeless advocacy organization was like, oh, we didn't know 
this where there was there a process? No, there wasn't. This was just about like fighting the image that they the bad image that they had because workers were demanding um, uh, rights on the job. So you could support the Awood Center. It's a nonprofit, five hundred one c three. They are doing amazing, amazing work. So. Echo, yes. support the Awood. Uh, uh, join Facebook. Uh, talk to your neighbors. All Join, right. Because Facebook's going to fix everything. <laughs> On that note of sincere optimism, can we do a big round of applause for these two amazing Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.